No, you tell it. No, you. I'm not telling it. You should totally tell it. <laughs> well, you should tell it. No, you tell it. No, You Tell It is a series that switches up the storytelling. So each performer writes a true life tale and then, switching with a partner, performs the other person's story, giving everyone involved the chance to share their own stories and experience someone else's. Our first story finds a dyed and wool New Yorker facing unforeseen suburban horrors, negotiating neighborly encounters that make her question whether to recalibrate her moral barometer to keep up with the Joneses, or in this case, the Weavers. Kicking off the second half of our special Brooklyn Book Festival event at the Astoria Bookshop, here is Ellie Dvorkin reading The Neighbor's Muse by H.E. Fisher. You want to take a step forward for your question oh. before before we hear the lovely story that you wrote? I was just wondering, you can pick either uh, in the city when you were living in the city and you said you were living in Rockland County now. I do. Uh, I wanted to know what makes you a fun neighbor? Oh, absolutely <laughs> not. <laughs> There's nothing fun about me, actually. I am dry. I'm not nice. I don't say good morning. I simply put my blinders on and walk. That makes you the best neighbor. You totally want me next I always say I want an extra star for, like, Lyft and Uber when, like, they don't talk to you. Absolutely. I want the not chatting star. If you want to be ignored, come to me. Uh, so we, well, we're not going to be able to ignore you for the next few minutes because we're going to hear The Neighbor's Muse, written by H.E. Fisher and performed by Ellie Dvorkin. Dan and I were throwing dinner together when the doorbell rang. After 20 years of living with dysfunctional New York City buzzers, the actual sound of an alarmingly standardized ding-dong was startling. <laughs> I went downstairs to see who it was, trying not to trip on all the packing boxes lining the hallway, and automatically put one eye to the door to look through the peephole. There wasn't one. I had to wonder, was it really that safe? In the yeah. suburbs? <laughs> I took my chances and opened the door. A high-pitched, pasteurized voice leapt out at me from a man with dark, round eyes and thick, black eyebrows that seemed to shuttle up and down in time to an invisible, neurological beat. <laughs> We're the neighbors! Welcome to the neighborhood! <laughs> he was with a woman with short, permed brown hair and a young boy with static, almost frozen features. My five-year-old son came racing down the stairs. Who is it, Mom? Neighbors, I think. <laughs> neighbors, he said dubiously. Who is this? <laughs> Mr. Weaver said, referring to our son with such over-the-top enthusiasm, I expected him to honk his nose and squeeze a bike horn. <laughs> our oldest, I said, instinctively putting my arm around him. Well, hello! <laughs> Mr. Weaver spoke as though he had studied a handbook on how to conduct social interactions. <clears throat> Chapter one, the art of greeting neighbors. <laughs> Our son said nothing and ran back upstairs. Mr. Weaver introduced his family. This is Ronnie, he said, gesturing to the boy. I am Louis, and this is my wife, Joni. Joan, 
she corrected him firmly, <laughs> but in a somewhat deflated tone, as though the air had been let out a bit and she needed pumping. <laughs> Dan joined me at the door and had the courteous wherewithal to invite the weavers in. Lewis immediately assaulted Dan with weaver facts. I thought I detected the words shoe repair, and then he marched right past us, bounding up the hallway stairs to the living room. Joan and son followed. Are you liking it here so far? Joan asked, and before I could respond, added, Well, of course you only just got here, but you will like it. <laughs> Thank you, I said, trying to remember what part of the dinner process we were in. I think the oven is on. Joan followed me into the kitchen. Oh, look how nice, she said, commenting on the decor. So different from ours. <laughs> I knew our kids had to be hungry, and I also knew there'd be no way to get them to eat while guests were in the house. What person with kids drops by at dinner time? <laughs> this was the nightmare. The suburbs. <laughs> I arrived kicking and screaming. I'd had concerns all along. Would the Times deliver here? Would the supermarket have vegetarian chicken salad? <laughs> Would I be a fashion pariah if I wore black all the time? Would I fit in? Would I want to? <laughs> we had felt a desperate pull to leave the city. The air was bad. Our baby girl and I were getting nosebleeds, and I was diagnosed with asthma. We moved almost a year to the day after the towers fell, part of the post-9-11 diaspora. How old are the children? Joan asked. She wasn't making eye contact with me. Two and five, I told her. Anya's five. The boys will be starting kindergarten together. That's nice. <laughs> she was looking at something near my left ear. Cool, I said, flicking my eyes in my left ear's direction in an effort to wrangle her gaze and wrestle it back to my own. Instead, Joan's eyes locked onto a point somewhere over my right shoulder. I'd love for you to see how I've decorated, she said. <laughs> Apparently, Joan was also a student of the Human Behavior Handbook. <laughs> Chapter 2, Chit-Chatting with Neighbors. <laughs> Repeat after me. How old are your children? I'd love for you to see how I've decorated. <laughs> Gee, are you liking it here? <laughs> I felt a pang. I'd always cherish the informal, unfiltered way New Yorkers talk to one another. One time, on the end train, a young woman sitting next to me looked at me and squirming in her seat said, I think I have a vaginal infection. <laughs> I gave her the name of my gynecologist. <laughs> Come on, I'll show you our house, Joan said, boldly going down the steps to the front door. Louis and your husband can watch the kids. You mean now? I asked. She went out. I mumbled something to Dan and followed her a few doors down to her home. Joan went inside without using a key. You leave the door unlocked, I asked, scandalized, and stepped inside behind her. <clears throat> Joan's eyes fell to the floor, transfixed on a single white tile. We do. <laughs> she seemed to be considering the question further. You'll get used to this life. <laughs> I followed Joan upstairs to the living room and upon entering it stopped dead in my tracks 
It was like that moment when you know the LSD has finally kicked in. <laughs> like when Dorothy understands at a cellular level that she is no longer in Kansas. <laughs> Every square inch of Joan Weaver's walls was covered with a museum's worth of framed paint-by-number images. <laughs> a kind of hysterical laugh caught in my throat. I bit my lip as my eyes began scanning the entire oeuvre. <laughs> there were paint-by-number puppies, clowns, bouquets of umbrellas, children ice skating, goldfish tossing beach balls, children licking ice cream cones, portraits of white Jesus, <laughs> Dalmatians riding on fire trucks, rabbits in mid-hop, a long-level depiction of a black cocker spaniel running with a croquet mallet in its mouth, deer chewing meadow grass, bulldogs playing poker, an old ship captain puffing on a pipe, and a cartoon bee with his arm swung around a daisy stem, his legs crossed like Mr. Peanut. <laughs> My hobby... Joan explained. I work in acrylic only. It relaxes me. <laughs> you must be very relaxed. <laughs> Joan glanced up at the ceiling as if the wisecrack had literally gone over her head. Have you ever tried freehand? I asked, having no idea what to call paintings without numbers. <laughs> I like paint by numbers, she explained because I always know how each picture will turn out. <laughs> I see, I said, like reading the last page of a novel first. I do that. Joan replied by staring blankly at her feet. Where I came from, paint-by-number pictures were ironic, kitsch, something collectors find at tag sales and flea markets. I didn't even know you could still buy a paint-by-number kit. I grew up with original artwork on the walls. We weren't wealthy, but art was something that was important to my folks. I inherited some of it and couldn't wait to hang it in our new home. But from what I could gather, Joan's works were a form of art therapy. <laughs> After my initial shock had subsided, I realized that I found her paintings moving. Thinking that instantly made me feel guilty, like I was looking down my nose at her for having cre created these pieces that were, what, facsimiles of real art? Were they any less real than the Mona Lisa or a painting that one of my children made? Who the hell was I to judge Joan Weaver and her paint-by-number acrylics? If her muse was manufactured in a factory on an assembly line, so be it. Well, it's lovely, I said, hoping to sum up the art and the house all at once and get the hell out of there. <laughs> Joan's eyes settled on the carpet as she thanked me. So, um, where did you move from? She asked cautiously, not wanting to pry, I suppose. The city. We were downtown. She looked at me directly for the first time. I'm so sorry, she said. A moment passed in silence. Come on, she said brightly. I want to show you my studio. Joan led me downstairs to the den where an easel was set up in the corner next to a love seat covered with stacks of neatly folded laundry. Leaning against it was a paint-by-number image of a fairy tale cottage set in the middle of woods. For you, she said, handing it to me. Welcome to the neighborhood. The picture was signed and framed under glass. I was flabbergasted. When I finally got back to the house, I made a fuss. I think the word is flourish over the gift she had presented me. 
Oh, my, Dan said politely and with a smidgen of apprehension in his voice. Joan smiled lightly and folded her arms across her belly, each hand cupping the opposite arm's elbow. Lewis's eyebrows seemed to whirl like helicopter blades, an apparent sign of pride in his wife's artistic abilities and unparalleled flair for gifting. Well, we better be going, Lewis said suddenly, as though a gong had sounded in his head, signaling time was up on this neighborly interaction. The weaver said goodbye, promising future playdates and potluck dinners. Dan had barely closed the front door and locked it when he said, Okay. Um, what are we doing with the painting? <laughs> the four of us settled into the kitchen. Put it in the garage? What if the garage door is open and they see it? <laughs> the attic? I suggested. What if they come over and don't see it hanging up? Our son asked, sensibly. You think they would ask where it is? I flicked my eyes at Dan for an answer. He might, Dan replied. Right, I said. She's too polite to say anything, but I wouldn't want to hurt her feelings. Hmm, my husband said, giving it some thought. An albatross. <laughs> What's that? Our daughter asked sleepily. Something you have to keep that you don't want, Dan explained. There's nothing hanging on the walls yet anyway, I said, so for now it makes no difference. And you said thank you, our son argued, shrewdly. True, I said. And so what if they don't see the picture hanging up? Do we really care what our neighbors think? <clears throat> it was a question I never would have asked in New York City. We all looked at Dan, our moral barometer, for the answer. He leaned back against the fridge and folded his arms across his chest. No, he said finally. We don't. We really don't care what our neighbors think. I set out four bowls, milk, and a box of cereal. Dinner was served. <laughs> In our next story, a daughter fails to find anything amusing about her lifelong role of caretaker, her mother's recent health scare making her rethink the responsibilities we take on, the ones put upon us, and what it takes to release yourself from the burdens of the past. H.E. Fisher reads, Fun. Written by Ellie Dvorkin. I'm very excited to ask you this question. Oh, no. So the last story this evening was written by Ellie Dvorkin, and there's a running joke between us. One of the biggest compliments I have about No You Tell It is that Ellie constantly says that you hate everything, but you love No You Tell It. So my question for you is, what is something that you used to love, maybe in, we've known each other a long time, maybe in our 20s, uh -huh. that you hate now, but you had to have loved it before? Staying up late. <laughs> Like, I would stay out until four, five, drunk, go out for breakfast, greasy yeah. food, sleep until it's time for brunch again the next day. Now, if, like, it hits 1030, I start to panic. <laughs> I, have, I have a child. I can't. What's going to happen? I can't. So that's it. That's very it's easy. Seeing Ali. Yeah. I hate it. Well, we're very excited because Ali's actually going to come out with us after the show. You might get her for about a half an hour. So. <laughs> we'll let you know where. No, we're done early, so it's good. Yeah, it's time. It's good. First, we're going to hear from Fun, written by Ellie Dvorkin and performed by H.E. Fisher. I am a 42-year-old big sister sipping pina coladas at a restaurant on Fort Lauderdale Beach with my 38-year-old little brother with whom I have nothing in common but DNA. 
He shifts his gaze from the ocean to me, flashes a big doofy grin and says, this is fun, right? I half-heartedly smile and nod, mostly to appease him, but I am stressed as fuck. <laughs> the whole reason we're in Florida is because our mother is in heart failure, and we're waiting to, for her to get a cardiac catheterization, a test that will tell us whether she needs a stent or bypass surgery or some other procedure, and therefore nothing about this trip feels fun. Not leaving my husband and five-year-old son in New York for an unknown amount of time, not spending bundles of money on airfare and hotels and gas, and certainly not this bathtub-sized glass of rum and fruit juice concentrate <laughs> with an umbrella in it. Though it is taking the edge off a teensy bit, I must say. <laughs> hey, says my brother, like the light bulb of the century has just gone off in his brain. Want to go with me to the 70s-themed dance club tonight? It's gay. So you, no one will hit on you. <laughs> uh, no, I say. This isn't a vacation, Phil. We don't know how long we're going to be here, so we should probably take it easy and get some sleep and not spend all of our money on things like drinking and dancing. Fine, he says. I'll take you back to the hotel, but I need to go blow off some steam. I hate him right now. He does whatever the hell he wants. While I have always been the responsible one, waking us both up for school and getting us dressed and pouring our cereal and packing our lunches, Dad always left for work early and Mom didn't feel the need to get out of bed, so there never seemed to be any other choice. However, our mother would rouse shortly before we walked out the door and call me into the room so she could see what I was wearing for the day. It wasn't to give approval on my outfit, though. It was so she could provide an accurate description of me to the police in case I was kidnapped. <laughs> <laughs> Mom not only saddled me with the morning routine, she also tasked me with putting my brother to bed at night, bribing me with the offer to stay up late and watch Trapper John, M.D., with her if I could go get him to sleep. I even gave us both baths, which is how, when I was eight and he was four, I noticed my brother had a hernia, which would require a surgical operation. Who knows how long it would have gone undiagnosed if I hadn't been taking such good care of the little asshole. <laughs> so I'm pissed at her for being such a crappy parent. And I resent having to be in Florida with Phil in the interest of her health and well-being. I take a long sip of my colada until it makes that loud slurping sound <laughs> signaling I've reached the bottom of the bowl. Do you think she's going to die? Phil asks. I'm pretty buzzed at this point. So I say, I don't know. But sometimes I think it would be easier if she did. <clears throat> I am an eight-year-old big sister about to go to Atlantic City with my four-year-old little brother, because that's what we do on most Saturdays in the summer. My dad will be at work all day because he owns a pharmacy, so my mom always brings a babysitter with us so that she can spend most of her time at the casino. The sitters' names are always Marie or Maria, which I think has something to do with the Catholic school they all go to. <laughs> 
we're picking up Maria McLaughlin, who isn't as pretty as Maria Macrina, but she's much nicer than Maria Kavanaugh. So I'm really looking forward to it. It's a long drive, so we play I Spy, and I'm going on a picnic. And when we get really noisy, my mom tells us to look out the window for pink bunny rabbits. I doubt they exist, but she assures us she has seen them, and Maria is playing along, and why would she lie? So we look. And just as I'm getting really annoyed that I haven't seen one, we park the car, hop out, and walk directly to the beach. My mom comes along, but as usual, she isn't wearing a bathing suit. She kicks off her shoes and rolls up her pants and wades into the ocean for us for about five minutes before handing Maria some money and saying, meet me at the Tropicana around five o'clock. <laughs> and then she is gone. <coughs> My mom never packs any toys to build sandcastles, so we use our hands to push the sand into a giant mountain shape and decorate it with seashells and bottle caps. When that gets boring, we walk to the edge of the ocean and dig our toes in, and we scream when it seems like the water is going to pull our feet away. We hear the Jack and Jill man ringing his bell, and we beg Maria to buy us some ice cream from his freezer on wheels. She uses some of the dollars Mom gave her, and Maria and I both get mint chocolate chip, which is our favorite, and Phil gets boring vanilla. <laughs> we try to lick it up before it melts all over our hands. I feel something land in my hair. Maria, I say, was that my ice cream or was that a bird? She looks. Bird. <laughs> Finish your ice cream and we'll go in the ocean and rinse your head. <laughs> I hate crying in front of babysitters because I'm supposed to be a big girl, but I can't stop the tears. I finish my cone as fast as I can and wait for my brother to finish his so we can get the poop out of my hair. <laughs> Maria does it very carefully because she knows I don't like getting my head soaked. And while she combs her fingers through my tangles, she sings a little of this really cool song I like. But they said it really loud, they said it on the air, on the radio. Whoa, on the radio. <laughs> All better now, she says. I nod and we head to the boardwalk. We go into the first arcade we find and play skee-ball and whack-a-mole and Pac-Man. When we get tired of the games, we find a candy shop and buy saltwater taffy and ounce of chocolate fudge. We wash it all down with ice-cold Cokes. And Maria lets out these really long, disgusting burps that make us laugh until my brother gets the hiccups. And when my mom's wad of cash runs out, it is time to go find her at the casino. We walk through the doors of the Tropicana and begin to shiver because we are still wet and the casino is freezing. It's very noisy because of all the jackpot bells and people cheering when they win and shouting curse words when they lose. There are lots of flashing lights and weird, ugly colors on the carpet, but we stare down at it anyway so we don't have to look at the grown-ups with cigarettes waving, Hi, cutie, as we wander around <laughs> searching for my mom. The security guard stops us, telling us we are too young to be in here, and he walks us back to the front door to wait while they page my mother. It's probably hard to hear an intercom announcement over all that casino noise 
when you're concentrating on poker or craps or whatever. So it takes a long time for her to come and find us. My brother's teeth are chattering. Maria wraps a towel around him and tries not to look worried. This is taking forever, and I wonder if maybe Mom went to Caesar's palace for better luck. <laughs> but then I see her walking toward us. Mom is always in a really good mood when she wins money. But today she must have lost, because she sweeps past us saying, Let's go! And we follow her outside, trying to hide our giggles every time she says, where the fuck did I park? <laughs> we load into our car seats in the back, and Maria sits up front. We hit traffic, and it doesn't take long before my brother and I are fast asleep. When my mother wakes us up, we are home. I start to cry again, because Maria has already been dropped off, and I didn't get a chance to say goodbye. But my mother tells me to stop acting like an actress. I don't really understand what that means, but I wipe my tears and I go inside. I am a 42-year-old big sister crying in my 38-year-old little brother's rental car as we drive away from the hospital. We have just found out three things. One, my mother gambled almost all of her social security check in the first two days of the month. <laughs> two, she has less than $120 to last her the rest of the month. And three, she doesn't need any kind of surgery. Just an adjustment to her medication along with a change in diet and exercise. The word change is bitterly hilarious to me because she is incapable of change. After she admitted to me that she was out of money, she looked at me with pathetic eyes and said, what am I going to do? As if none of it was her fault. As if it had inexplicably happened to her, the rage seeped from deep in my stomach to high in my chest, and I got up from the visitor's chair next to her hospital bed, leaned in really close to her face and said, I don't feel sorry for you. And then I broke down. Because even after all she has subjected me to, spitting bile at her in her moment, at her in her moment of vulnerability made me feel like a terrible person. I can see that you're upset, said my mother. Why don't you just go? No, I said. I want you to watch me cry. I want you to see how sad I am. No wonder I'm such an actress. This is some dramatic shit. <laughs> when my brother walked in from getting coffee and learned what was going on, he got angrier than I have ever seen, and said, I wish you never got any of Dad's retirement money. You don't deserve a penny of it. You disgust me. And then we walked out together and left her there alone. So now we're in the car, and I'm crying. And my brother is gripping the steering wheel so tightly his knuckles have no blood in them. But instead of cursing or punching something, he says, 
Let's go to that club. <laughs> my hair is frizzy from the Florida humidity. My makeup is smudged from all the tears, and I am not dressed for going out. But after two vodka tonics, I don't care anymore. <laughs> a giant image of Donna Summer appears on the video screen by the dance floor, and I hear it. I never told a soul just how I've been feeling over you. But they said it really loud. They said it on the air, on the radio. Whoa, on the radio. Whoa, on the radio. I follow my brother through the crowd, and we secure a spot right under the disco ball that was supposedly salvaged from Studio 54, and we proceed to host a move. It is an epic release to get swept up in the music and the strobe lights and to be part of the energy of a bunch of bodies moving all at once. I am not a terrible person. I am a daughter dancing away a lifetime of parental damage. I am a mother dancing like I'll never let myself do this to my son. I am a big sister dancing with my little brother, and we are a team who will tackle this together, despite our differences. I let myself close my eyes and feel the pulsating heat beat, and when I open them again, I see that Phil is beaming at me. I told you this place was fun, he says. <laughs> and instead of launching back some snarky retort, I simply return his infectious smile and say, yeah, you were right. <laughs> That's it. Thanks for joining us for this installment of No, You Tell It. Visit us on the web at knowyoutellit.com.